filibuster receives sponsorship from the Ehrlich Law Office, discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions serving Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia. They handle employment issues including wrongful termination, wage disputes, discrimination, equal employment opportunity matters, and more. They also handle civil rights litigation, defamation, and general litigation. For a free consultation, visit EhrlichLawOffice.com slash filibuster. So the thing I don't understand is who orders sweet vermouth on the rocks with a twist. That's not a drink. That's not a drink. And yet here's Annie McDowell time after time in Groundhog Day ordering sweet vermouth on the rocks with a twist. It, it bothers me to no end. It is my least favorite thing about a wonderful movie. You know what bothers me about that bit? Is that uh, I don't understand what Bill Murray sees in Andy McDowell's character. She's just she's very bland. She is, but <laughs> yes, he he seems to be projecting onto her. I think. I mean, she's just the only character uh, that his character could pursue a relationship with. I guess. Yeah, Bill Murray, like his serious characters, and not not that. Um, this is a particularly serious character, but they, you know, they're, they're always deeply flawed in their own way. And this seems to be uh, a case of projecting a, a savior sort of thing onto her, which she literally is in the end, a savior, right. uh, saving him from purgatory or whatever metaphysical thing you want to call Punk Zatani in, in that film. I call it Phil's home. Phil the the groundhog? Yes. Okay. Not not Phil being Bill Murray. No. Because he's not from there. I know. I know you haven't seen that movie very much, Ben, so I wanted to make sure I was very clear. <laughs> ben Ben is more familiar with the sequel Groundhog's Day. <laughs> hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster. The Black and Red United and Mocking Ben Bromley Podcast. I'm Adam Taylor. Ben Bromley is obviously here, as is Jason Anderson. We're all from blackandredunited.com, where we write about DC United, the U.S. men's national team, and lots more. Tonight, we're talking about both those things. We're also talking with our good friend, Alicia Rodriguez, about LAFC, an expansion team due to start in Major League Soccer in 2018. Uh, We're also going to open up the Twitter box later tonight, so uh, make sure you stick around to the end for that. Before we do anything, though, Ben, what are you drinking? So last week, I thought I had a drink that had never been on the podcast before, and I was delightfully wrong about that. It was only like mere weeks before that uh, uh, Adam had had uh, that same drink on this podcast. But this time, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Wait, you went with the loud clap and you're only pretty sure? (laughs) Yes! I am almost positive that this is a drink that no one has had on this podcast before. You're mildly confident. Every every listener right now, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, do a little drum roll on the table or on your knees or on the No, 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 please don't, don't, no, this is, that's way too overselling this. Don't do any of that. So I'm drinking a revolver, which is, um... Uh, coffee liqueur and bourbon and a dash of uh, Peychaud's bitters. I don't believe I've ever had that on the show. No, it hasn't been on the show. No, no, that's a new one. Good work, Ben. Good. Yes. <laughs> it's actually pretty decent. Okay, uh, I was going to say, is it any good? <laughs> no, yeah, it's pretty decent. Um, because I'm cheap, I did not get uh, uh, Kahlua because that's too expensive. Um, so I got the very inappropriately, inappropriately named, but also appropriately priced for my budget. Uh, Cafe Lolita is the name of the, uh, (laughs) coffee liqueur that is available at, uh, the Virginia ABC store. I was about to say, Uh, if you're, if you bought Tia Maria and subbed that in for Kahlua, they are not, you can't switch those two out. Tia Maria is way too, uh, it's not thick enough. Um, Kahlua is one of those that's, it's. It's hard to find an analog for it that isn't at Kahlua prices, unfortunately. Right. 
and I haven't had Kahlua in so long that this may not be, uh, I'm sure it's very different, but at least it's, it's, it's got a sweetness. It's, it does have a, a thickness enough that it's analog enough in my mind. It's, it's allowed you to forget. It's also least. like, it's also like a third of the price. So yeah, I'm okay with it. I think one Kahlua substitute I've gotten before, and it was the, the folks at Schneider's who, who turned me on to it. Uh, and if you don't know Schneider's and you live in DC, you are derelict. Pan over and, with the pretzels. No, no, Schneider's on Capitol Hill. Which like the really hard, wine. hard pretzels? No. They're a wonderful wine and liquor store that is... With pretzels. Regularly overstaffed. They and Wardman Wines are my favorite wine stores in D.C. Um, they they turned me on to Copa de Oro, which is a, a really soccer-appropriate connection there. Um, but it's a coffee liqueur that's thick like Kahlua and costs less. Jason, what are you drinking? Uh, I have, uh, I'm, I'm keeping pretzels. it local. I do not have pretzels anywhere in the house. I Are these just, pretzels making you thirsty? I don't have any pretzels to get thirsty with. I, I only talk I, about Snyder's of Hanover pretzels because my parents always had them in our house and they're always like too hard for my tiny child teeth. And, um, yeah, they're not actually great pretzels at all. So don't ever have them. How did this turn into Wait, a therapy session? Hold on. Can I, I feel I'm like gonna, we crossed the line because, somewhere. Be, oh, don't worry. Because you had a, worse. because you had a groundhog day bit. <laughs> Um, so and maybe next week I'll get out of Snyder's of Hanover bit. A completely brief detour. Um, back like post college, uh, me and my friends would drive. We would drive to the metro station in College Park and then not be able to drive ourselves home when we came back from DC because we'd be drunk. So we'd have to walk like two miles to go home. And in our path home, we'd go past a giant that's open twenty four hours a day. It's the Beltway Plaza Giant. Um, and invariably one of my friends from growing up, we would go in there and he would go to the chip section and buy a large bag of honey mustard, Snyder, Snyder's pretzel bits, a little oh, like, no, no, fingertip size pretzels. And no, he would eat disgusting. the entire bag before he went to sleep every single time. We would always tell him, don't eat the entire bag. Don't do this to yourself. <laughs> and keep in mind, we're all eating stupid drunk food that we bought at Giant. And, yeah, like, yeah. and he's, of course. still everyone is like, don't do that. That's dumb. No, and those are... eat the whole bag and then he'd pass out and then the next day he'd be like, oh, I feel terrible. And we're like, that's because you ate those stupid pretzels, you idiot. That <laughs> no, happened but... like once a month for like two years. Like every single but... time he came and drank with us, this would happen. My parents would also buy those uh, occasionally, in, in addition to the re- boxes of regular Snyder's of Hanover uh, pretzels. And yeah, no, those are awful. Those are real bad. They smell. They smelled bad. Uh, oh yeah, they're bad real smell. bad. Anyway, uh, I, the drink I'm drinking is not pretzel based at all. <laughs> I have um, Duck Pin Brewing uh, from Baltimore. Uh, they have a beer they call Balt. It is an alt beer. Alt is German for old, so they use the uh, now I can't remember what it is, but there's a it's an old style of making beer essentially, um, an old process, um, and uh, it comes out to be a nice uh, copper lager with a nice toasty note to it. It's it's a it's a pretty good all around beer. It's it's just it's a very solid beer that you could drink pretty much any time of the year. I would say. As for me, I'm drinking uh, Devil's Backbone, so Ben will be happy yeah. with that. Uh, I'm drinking their Baracus Double Brown India Pale Ale, which I think Ben will be less would, happy with because he doesn't like putting hops in things that are brown. This is true. I don't. Um, but it's it's a very strong beer. It's uh, ten some no nine point six percent alcohol by volume, uh, so it's pretty big. Uh, it doesn't taste like a double IPA. It tastes more like just a you know really aggressive IPA, if that makes sense. It doesn't have the yeah. It's more the the piney and juniper hoppy hoppiness rather than the really floral deep hoppiness you get from the normal really big IPAs. I don't know if that's because the malt kind of kind of take out some of the deepness of the hops. I'm not sure exactly what it is. It's not exactly what I thought it was going to be. It's not bad by any means. Uh, it's good. Anything Devil's Backbone does is pretty good. Um, but I don't think this is their strongest effort. And with, right. with that, let's. Uh, are you let's, are you dun- are you dunking a pretzel in it? I am not. In fact, I I don't have pretzels in the house either. Me like either. Jason, and apparently like you as an adult uh, who has been traumatized in childhood. Yeah, by yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, pretzels aren't actually good, so don't have pretzels. 
Wait, you're saying all pretzels are bad? Well, I mean, giant giant soft pretzels with cheese dipping sauce are good. But hard pretzels are not that great at all. I'm not Yeah, I'm not huge on on hard pretzels. I I hated them as a kid just like Ben did apparently, but I don't think I have quite the emotional scarring that Ben has from pretzels. But um, I mean like a giant hot soft pretzel with a big jug of a uh, cheesy dipping sauce is amazing i don't like the cheesy dipping sauce i like mustard okay mustard too mustard's good okay. too all right yeah uh my daughter loves the hard little hard pretzels so uh i, I well, she's a child she's a, she's all right she has them. Can, can, can I let you, you let you know something We're, we just now passed 10 minutes uh and we've almost entirely pretzels, pretzels. <laughs> we literally just passed it I mean, this isn't that weird for filibuster. That's true. I, nevertheless, I apologize to our listeners. Um, <laughs> the thing is, there's there's not a ton to talk about uh, right now. Uh, we we barely have enough content to fill. Should we talk? One should segment we, should on... we talk about Sebastian Latou's pretzel uh, preferences? Do you know what they are? No, I don't. Then no, we shouldn't. Okay. Okay. Something French, perhaps. Perhaps Ben. I don't even know what French pretzels are. I, I mean, he spent some time in Philly, so he might actually be really into oh, soft pretzels. You're right. Thank you for indulging my terrible pretzel bit. Thank. We're yes. close to 11 minutes on pretzels now. <laughs> like I said, there's barely enough content to fill one segment on DC United and the U.S. men's national team. So um, I guess we should eventually get to that. So let's do that now. Uh, as far as DC United, uh, preseason move to Florida this week. Anything to add, gentlemen? Okay, more on that in the, the Twitter box. Yes. Uh, S- Steve Birnbaum went 90 for the U.S. national team this weekend. Looked pretty good. Uh, Had a nice header. Sorry, sorry. Thinking about that game put me to sleep. Um, Jason, any thoughts on uh, the U.S. who were who were solid, I suppose, if unspectacular against Serbia in a scoreless draw? Yeah, I think both teams were very focused on team shape and basic fundamental organizational stuff. And that led to a lot of low risk uh, play. I think both teams kept finding themselves in need of one more runner or somebody to really deliver a... Uh, a special moment on the board, not even a special moment, but like a, a high quality moment. Um, I think the U S had a, quite a few attacks break down based on a bad touch at a crucial moment. Um, and maybe if they find a sharper finish from Darlington Nagby in the first half, um, they, they find a goal and maybe the game opens up from there, but this was a game that definitely needed a flash of something. Um, and it just, neither team was never quite able to pull it off. Um, Serbia should have been given a penalty kick. Maybe that would have made the game interesting if the referee had gotten that one right. Cause yes, they, in the very furthest corner yeah, of the penalty but, box, but still within the yes. penalty box. Greg, Greg Garza very clearly fouled uh, whoever it was from Serbia, and it was very clearly inside the box. The referee called the foul, gave it outside the box, Um I mean, everyone. So it's not. It's so. It's one of those that was so obvious uh, on the replay that it's not even worth uh, being mad about. Because I guess it's also a friendly, so it's, there's no real consequence. Except it did lead to, or possibly contributed to, a game remaining just as boring. Um, but yeah, I, I thought the team shape was overall okay. Um, I think uh, the interesting thing, the, the really the interesting thing, is Bradley dropping deep. Uh, between the center backs and having Birnbaum and Marshall spread out, which meant Garza and Zussi pushing up. It's the look that fans in MLS probably associate with Columbus more than anyone else. Um, uh, you know, during the game, I think um, Taylor Twelman said that Birnbaum and Marshall don't do that at their clubs, which is more or less true. Um, I think recent DC games have started, they've started to spread out a little more than they used to. Um, but Seattle knows Chad Marshall doesn't really belong in that section of the field. Uh, if you get caught, if you turn the ball over, uh, and he's stuck out closer to the touchline in the middle, then you've got a big problem because it's not his game. Um, so that was, I, I think that was more arena saying, this is how I want the team to play overall. And when I have everyone available, that's how we're going to play it. So I might as well work on that shape now while I've got some of those guys here. Um, I don't, that's think the point I want to harp on. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. Is- 
Go ahead. Is that Arena had had a purpose for his decisions. Yes. And that... <laughs> I think there, there are lots of things that I've heard people say, well, if Klinsman did that, you'd be all up uh, his back. It's like Klinsman would make a choice and then half, literally half the game later would throw it out. Yeah, I mean, we, we and, had an entire camp that, dedicated to a three, five, two that was ditched at halftime in a friendly. Yes. Um, where there's no, con- like if you get beaten, so be it. It's, there's no consequence to that loss. Um, and it was an encouraging half against a right. really strong Chile team. Yes. And, and they looked pretty good in it. And then he just threw it out. Uh, right. I, they didn't look great. They looked like a team playing their first game in a 3-5-2, which, spoiler alert, a few years later, they would bring it back out. And they still looked like a first a team in their first game <laughs> in a 3-5-2. I think, the second only time then, around. Yeah. <laughs> only then, it was a World Cup qualifier that they, they got blown out in. Yes. So, <laughs> take your pick. Right. But, but in this game, pretty deliberate. In this game, yeah, it was a, a conscious decision to yeah. move Graham Zusi to right fullback, a, a move which he said he was going to do two weeks ago, and he followed through on. And maybe this is me minutes. being... Yeah, for a full 90. Maybe yeah. this is me being a media elite pundit, whatever, but <laughs> when a coach says something publicly and then takes actions to implement what they said they were going to do, that, to me, is encouraging on some level versus when a coach says something and then reality has no bearing or what he says has no bearing on his actions down the line that bothers me and that that's one difference between arena and klinsman that we saw in this game is you understood what he was doing with nagby on the left you understood what he was doing with bradley uh at the the six you knew what he was doing with zussi at fullback and with bedoya at right midfield it was there was a thought process and a process of any kind happening here. And the players obviously uh, had some instructions, too. Even if Zussi and Garza, they were doing some weird stuff, uh, staying wide instead of tucking inside when they were in a low block. But they, there were still that that general pattern of there, there being a reason and an obvious reason for each of the choices was a big deal to me. Are, are you saying, A, that uh, you don't enjoy being lied to? Yes. Okay. And B, you also referred to uh, yourself as possibly being media elite. Uh, the media elite in the Specific- pejorative sense. Well, well, specifically, he is an East Coast media elite. It's true. Oh, it's true. I am here in Washington D.C. In fact, I am. Uh, I I am the worst of the media elite here. You guys can't see this, but Adam is actually eating caviar while we do the show. <laughs> <laughs> Straight out of the effing salmon. His house has three chandeliers. It doesn't even make sense. Like not even in a line. They're just chandeliers. <laughs> They're just everywhere. <laughs> just and it's funny because my house is tiny. Just show off. My house is tiny, and we just got chandeliers all over the place just to this have. This is them. our extra chandelier. Oh, Jason, a chandelier just grew out of your ceiling, dude. Oh, good heavens! Well, that's what happens <laughs> when you're being elite. Exactly. Uh, another takeaway from this game. Um, on I guess on the less positive side, but it, again, it's nice to hear a coach say something that that comports with observable reality. Is is that Bruce Arena was not kidding when he said there was no depth at fullback in this pool, or very little uh, depth, or wow. even breadth at, at fullback. Mm. Go ahead, Ben. You have I mean, thoughts? He sent two fullbacks home, who we at least could have. Subbed in at various times. I mean, he wanted to give Graham Zussi a full 90, and he had two left backs already. So, I mean, I, I under, again, I understand those decisions. Right, but he doesn't have to start Graham Zussi for a full 90 next week, which he's probably going to have to. I, I mean, that's fine. I, you want to try an experiment? Give it time. You, if you're doing an experiment, you don't pull the plug after 45 minutes, especially since Zussi looked better the, the longer that game went on Sunday. Uh so why not give him another 90 in a friendly when you know that whoever you bring in right now is not going to start? Yedlin is probably going to start uh, in the World Cup qualifiers. Well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, my more questions are about the left back spot, the right back spot. I mean, yeah, he was handicapped by who was available. So I'm not that concerned about the right back spot. Right. Left back. I, most, I, mostly I, I, mostly I was. But... No, I understand the choices. I uh, I hope and I assume that Jorge Villafania is going to get the full 90. Uh, yes. Uh, in the next game. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I would have liked, I would, I would have just liked to see Keegan Rosenberry get 
at least 45 minutes in one of these games uh, over Graham Zuzi just because it would have been interesting to see what he could do and compare it to Zuzi. And yeah, Zuzi can get another 45 minutes at the beginning of the next game and then, yeah, it would have been nice to see what somebody else could have done. I, I I understand that. At the same time, if you know that Rosenberry isn't going to, to figure into your plans, let him have preseason with this club, which I think was the thinking for him and well, Kemp. Yeah, but you I get mean, them you... in and give them their first taste of the national team, which is, this hasn't just been Bruce Arena's practice. It, it was uh, Bob Bradley's too. The first time you come in, you're, you might get a cameo, but you're probably not going to get major minutes. There are some exceptions, but... It's not like Klinsman where somebody comes in and immediately starts, well, sure, which but, but even you, he but, didn't do that that much. But you know as much about Rosenberry as you do about Graham Zuzi at fullback, because Graham Zuzi's never been a fullback before. Right, but you know Graham Zuzi's been in World Cup qualifiers and been important in World Cup qualifiers, which, whether it matters to us, does seem to matter to coaches across the spectrum. Okay. Okay. So uh, this formation, it, it was announced as a four-two-three-one, um, and it was actually an announced formation that kind of looked similar to to what was on the field. Which, yay, truth or whatever, it actually played more like a, a four-one-four-one, not that dissimilar to to DC United's. Um, a little more aggressive as far as the the center back spreading out and and the six dropping in between them, as Jason said. Um, one spot I. Th- I think besides the fullbacks where, where it didn't quite work as well as DC United's did late in the season was at right midfield. Ali Bedoya played it very defensively and there wasn't really much going on up that, that right flank. Jason, what did you think about that? Well, I think the, I mean, the idea on paper was uh, Bedoya was to be a possession hub and allow it, that would allow Zussi to overlap and get into the attack, which if you're going to convert a, former attacking player into a fullback that's kind of what you expect them to do it's very rare that you see these conversion projects become a stay-at-home fullback type of player that doesn't happen very often especially this late in Zeus's career um so I think that was the idea was to play um someone reliable who could pinch inside and create an alley for Zeusy to run into um but that didn't happen very much and in fact the best move on either flank to open up room for a fullback to come forward was on the other side of the field. Um, and it was Darlington Nagby doing, doing it virtually all on his own. Um, so that, that was the idea, um, from that, from that angle. I thought the fact that this four, two, three, one turned into a four, one, four, one was not, not a great reflection on, uh, Sasha question. I thought he didn't really make an impact on the game at all. Uh, I thought, you know, I actually tweeted something out saying that that the door was wide open for Benny Philhaber to um, maybe get a you know move his name up ahead of questions on the depth chart, and Philhaber came in and probably created as much in what what was it ten fifteen minutes of playing yeah. time. Yeah, Not the game had opened up, but I wouldn't be surprised yeah. to see Philhaber start. The question Jamaica. actually, um, before, right before he came on, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, question was released not because of performance, but his wife is about to give birth. Um, so they let him go home. Um, so he won't even be available for the game against Jamaica. So Phil Hubbard will get his shot anyway. But um, in terms of which player has the advantage as far as MLS playmaker who uh, has a shot at that being part of the full squad, it's probably it's probably Phil Hubbard unless he has a really bad game against Jamaica because question sort of he didn't help the formation out because he's supposed to stay up high. And with the Red Bulls, he's actually really good at staying up there um, and staying close to the striker. And and that's part of the reason why he creates so much. It's not that he's um, a a truly amazing passer or has this amazing vision. It's that he takes up good positions and uses the fact that he's physically built like a a different position player. He's built almost like a center back. um, And he uses that to his advantage. And then the pressure helps him just create. um, It's more of a quantity uh, situation there. Um, and, and, him and yeah, he was, didn't, it did not help. And yeah, he was, uh, I, I often, I often on replay, I often got him confused with Steve Birnbaum because he was heading away so many balls, uh, in the, in the box that I had to wait and see which number like flipped over and be like, oh, that's 16, not 15, uh, because he was so much, act, so active in the box and, 
acting like you would think Steve Birnbaum would. But yeah, I think also that uh, it makes me slightly glad because that he kind of failed because Bruce won't have any temptation to move uh, Christian Pulisic to the wing like uh, Jurgen Klinsmann did. You mean uh, move Pulisic. him from the wing? Oh, right. No, he's, he should be on the wing. Yes. Never mind me. Never around. mind me. Never mind me. He should be on the wing. Directions are different. We, we, we still have a hole there. Yeah, I I think this system well, makes yeah. a lot of sense when the U.S. are at full strength. And, and also kind of made sense for, for this this personnel. Go ahead. I'm, I'm not so sure. I think when the U.S. is at full strength, uh, Altidore and Bobby Wood playing up front um, yeah. is is a better... I mean, yes, everyone hates the 4-4-2 these days, but um, the fact is... Jo- Josie needs support. Yeah. Jo- Josie is... He's said as much after this game, and Bobby... Also, Bobby Wood deserves to be on the field. He's one of the best 11 players the U.S. has. Um, and so getting the two of those guys on the field, I mean, if question or fail Haber or somebody else comes along and proves that they deserve to be in that number 10 role, then so be it. That's great. Um, but until then, I mean, I don't see an argument for playing, deci- deciding to play a four, two, three, one that forces a number 10 to be on the field at the expense of Bobby Wood or Josie Altador. Um, yeah, that's I fair. think it's, this is a situation where you have to put, uh, which players are going to get on the field ahead of, well, this is our system, and then we'll plug guys in. Um, we're not in a position for that right now. The U.S. has to get their best players on the field, and that means that most likely uh, when the qualifiers roll around means a two-forward system, which means I don't think Arena is going to roll out some sort of 3-4-1-2. I think we're going to see 4-4-2, Wooden, Altidore, uh, Bradley, and someone in the central midfield, no number 10. Yeah, we did see a little bit of four four two or four one three two, whatever you want to call it, at the end of the game when Aguidello came on and kind of partnered. It was it was really wide open. Well, yeah, it, the game opened up and he played left wing like he was a guy that wanted to be a striker, um, yeah. and he was, oh, I'm the left winger, but I really belong further forward, which is pretty typical for Aguidello when he gets stuck on the wing. Um, yeah. It also kind of it. That didn't really control. I don't think that was a good. Uh, granted, Agudelo was on the field for like six minutes Five altogether, minutes, yeah. um, with stoppage time thrown in. Yeah, um, but it wasn't a good six minutes from him because when you're coming in and the system is clearly supposed to be four two three one, and you are just abandoning your position left and right, that's not a good look. Unless you've been specifically told like you're on the left, but I want you to get forward as a, as a second striker, which I don't think was the the case. I think he was just making crazy runs and hoping for the best. Um, that's not really a way to sell yourself on a new coach by just completely ignoring the tactics in, in place and doing whatever you want. Yeah, I do wonder um, like if we do see four four two, if it'll be Bradley and Jones in the middle with Bradley having clear instructions <laughs> to sit back and it's just yeah. full circle. Only this time, instead of sitting side by side, Jones will play kind of the the... Good luck getting Fake Jones number to play 10. position. Yeah, yeah least, I mean, Jones, Jones gets a free roll to run around because at least Arena, obviously, he's we a place for him. Well, at least it won't be for the first World Cup qualifier. Yeah. Well, here's here's the thing, and, and this is something that I I would maybe think of with Jones is maybe at this point he's not a starter. Uh, maybe you bring someone that can actually hold a position that relates to Bradley, um, and then you get yourself in front, and then you can bring Jones in as that rapid style number 10 where his job is mostly to win the ball and play people in behind because the other team is opening up and so his destructive tendencies end up helping you win the ball in in favorable positions when the other team isn't prepared and the fact that he's always i mean everyone likes a midfielder who looks forward with their first pass jones is uh the extreme of that um so if you're already in the lead and you have jones playing people in behind uh, you might be able to pad your lead pretty easily. He's sort of he's a, a midfielder who can do both. He can he can come in and clog up the middle and win the ball more, but he can also be the guy that delivers the big assist or or the big goal uh, to help you win a game. Um, I would maybe be interested in that. I actually think Sebastian Leggett, who replaced him uh, mm-hmm. at halftime, might be a better partner for Bradley at this point. Oh, yeah. Even though he's not 
he doesn't have anywhere near Jones's experience in the Champions League or with the U.S., but the fact is he's not going to run around uh, like an unhinged lunatic and not play he plays, a position. He's going to yeah, play his he position. He plays an actual position. Right. He's going, and in a 4-4-2, your two central midfielders have to play a position. They can't just do whatever they want. Um, right. It breaks down very fast, when, Mike, as we saw under Klinsman, when Michael Bradley is alone in central midfield because everyone else is running around with no idea what to do, or in Jones's case, just running around because that's what, who he is as a player – um, you run into a problem. Uh, on a related note, the Galaxy are probably not going to play Legit in the middle of this year, which is very dumb, and I think it's awesome for MLS Kurt Arnolfo, uh, clap, right. clap, clap. But anyway, clap. we're not here to talk about the Galaxy. Um, Aren't we? I mean, we could talk about Kurt Arnolfo failing. We can make it a weekly segment. No, <laughs> I, I I don't want to do that. It would bring too, bring back some memories of 2010 that I've worked really hard to repress. Right, but and what if Galaxy had a 2010 level season? Then we'll talk about that when it happens. Let's not jinx it by, by, by okay, playing it up now. Instead, let's talk about their competitors in Los Angeles, LAFC, which we will do right after the break with our good friend Alicia Rodriguez. Sit around, stick around. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. Shut up, Jason. Hey, Ben, um, you wouldn't say this is a hostile work environment, would you? You can tell uh, me. Depends. I mean, well, I should ask you. I mean, is are goats hostile? Uh, I think goats are, are hostile. I think that they are secretly trying to take over the world. But but if this were a hostile work environment, or if I were trying to steal your wages or or do something else oh, nefarious... Oh, you are. I'm really not. Uh, but in a workplace environment, you know who to call, right? Because you live in the District of Columbia or Northern Virginia. I do. It's the Ehrlich Law Office. It is the Ehrlich Law Office. Uh, they, they offer discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions in Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia, which means I can totally create a hostile work environment for Jason. Except, no, he, they, they wouldn't want me to say that. That would be bad. I do not want to create a hostile work environment for anyone. But Jason couldn't call them nonetheless because he lives in Maryland. Sorry, Jason. I'll fight my way through this. All right. <laughs> Uh, they handle workplace discrimination, wage theft, uh, non-compete clauses, and uh, non-solicitation litigation. They handle civil rights and government takings and disability and education law. They handle a lot of things. And if you are interested in a free consultation, head to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. Welcome back to Filibuster. Uh, the Los Angeles Football Club are now one year away from kicking a ball, which is really just our way of finding an excuse to have Alicia Rodriguez back on the show. She's a good friend of ours, and we're happy to have her back on as a guest. Alicia, welcome back. Thanks, guys, for having me on. I appreciate uh, the invitation. You know the drill. What are you drinking? <laughs> Dinner's coming up in 10 minutes, so I, I don't, I'm not drinking anything right now. I'm trying to get through my day and... Uh, I don't know, probably a nice glass of uh, Pinot Grigio when I when I get to it. All right, I understand that. So, um, what's the latest on LAFC now that you're you're one year from from that first preseason? Yeah, things are really starting to kick off. Uh, finally, uh, obviously, there's a long way to go. We're a little over a year away from them actually playing, but um, yeah, a lot of stuff is happening. I think the biggest thing is there's a construction construction of a stadium right now. Um, that's well underway. There was a big event, uh, this past weekend to kind of commemorate the supporters and, um, make sure that, you know, they were kind of involved in the process. So there was like basically a big old party down there and supporters got to sign, um, pieces of concrete that are going to be under the field, I guess, uh, from what I understand. Nice. I saw, and a- yeah. I saw a really adorable picture of a, a little girl having her parents trace her feet on the foundation. And as the father of a daughter at, in a market that is trying to get a stadium built, I got a little wist, wistful. It got a little dusty for me. Yeah, I hear you. I, I'm in a similar situation. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited to be able to take my daughter to the games and, uh, you know, kind of see what the atmosphere is like. It's, it's going to be pretty exciting. And, I mean, I know you guys are very much looking forward to a stadium, too. You guys have games right now. We don't have any games, so uh, we're we're waiting for that to to come about. So uh, 
what does the timeline on the stadium look like? Obviously, they've they've torn down the old Expo Center and are are building on the site there. Are they going to be ready for opening day 2018, or is this going to be a classic MLS early season road trip, the likes of which we are probably looking forward to here in D.C. as well? You know, I'm not entirely sure at this point. I mean, the team has been pretty kind of open-ended, I, I guess, as far as what they expect, you know, when they expect the stadium to open. Uh, I think they're probably going to have it open in 2018, probably, you know, if nothing catastrophic happens, probably fairly early in the season. But I certainly would not rule out a road trip of who knows how long. Um, you know, it, I think it's it's not unusual to kind of pad out your schedule to have maybe the first home game a month or, you know, maybe even two months into the season. I'm sure they want to cut down on, on having a really long road trip, especially as an expansion team. But um, I think the aim is to be as close to opening day of the whole season as possible at this point. So this year, Alicia, Minnesota and Atlanta have provided us with two very different uh, blueprints for how to start an expansion franchise. Uh, Given that they're in Los Angeles and given that they're owned by uh, 47,000 of the most uh, important people in Los Angeles, I think I can guess what which of those two uh, situations they'll probably go after. But how do you see uh, LAFC starting off uh, next year? Do you think they're going to aim for big spending and big splash, or do you think they're going to go a more uh, traditional MLS route? I definitely think they're going to be more like Atlanta. And I think one of the things with Atlanta that maybe is flying under the radar is that they're trying to build their youth program pretty quickly, and they've already signed a couple of uh, academy players. So, you know, I think they're probably doing a – I mean, obviously the proof will be in the pudding. We don't really know how it's going to turn out until we see the games, but – I think they're doing a pretty good job of trying to be as comprehensive as possible from the start. And if it works, then certainly that's going to be the model moving forward for ambitious teams that have the money to spend. It seems at this point that LAFC will have the money to spend on that. And so I, I think they're going to um, you know, either try to do what Atlanta is doing as closely as possible or you know, who knows, maybe try and exceed them. And that may come with, you know, successes or pitfalls along the way as well. But I, I definitely don't see them pinching pennies and, um, you know, trying to do a slow build like it seems like Minnesota's doing. I think they want to make a splash right away, uh, like Atlanta. And then my... Uh, oh, go ahead, my, Ben. Yeah, my other question is, uh, since Mia Hamm is one of the key owners of LAFC, uh, how soon do you think they're going to start a uh, launch a women's team in uh, NWSL, and uh, how big of a priority do you think that's going to be for them? You know, I think there's a decent chance that they'll have a team for 2018. Um, I wouldn't say for sure that it's a locked in, or you know, I've definitely heard it's, it's for sure happening. I think uh, chances are LAFC is probably going to uh, do a, a bid for an NWSL team, and I think given the Again, the money behind the the ownership group, the fact that they have their own stadium, you know, that's going to be a a boon for for NWSL chances. Um, and it seems like they're taking it seriously. They've um, made a partnership with one of the most successful uh, academies, girls academies in the region, and they're going to be entering the girls development academy. And they seem to be committed to building uh, youth soccer on both the boys and girls sides, which I think is really great. Um, and so, yeah, I think. I think it's possible for 2018. I wouldn't say for sure it's going to happen, but I wouldn't be altogether surprised if they decide to launch two teams at the same time. And if they did that, it would be unprecedented and would be pretty interesting, I think, from you know a, a U.S. soccer perspective, but certainly here in the local market as well. Uh, Alicia, there is a connection for some of our listeners to LAFC. It's uh, John Thorrington in the front office there. Um, I guess just give us a general impression of... of what you've seen out of him as a uh, off-field leader and and what his mindset is as far as his uh, duties with LAFC. Yeah, I mean, as far as my interactions with him, I've I've talked to him several times, and he's a a friendly guy, seems extremely smart. Um, I think his kind of experience level is from a variety of fields. You know, he's gotten the education. He's obviously had the experience playing professionally abroad and here in the U.S., um, he's talked more than once about the fact that he has experience playing on an expansion team in MLS with the Vancouver Whitecaps, and they had a terrible season that year. Mm. So I think, um, 
I think that's a good thing because I think he kind of understands the the challenges that expansion teams go through. Um, you know, so so I think that's good. I mean, obviously the big thing is with all of these new guys, you know, these guys who have MLS experience, who are entering front offices, are entering the coaching ranks. I mean, we're starting to see maybe a second generation of those guys enter the league at this point. Um, but it's still kind of trial and error. You know, you never know who's going to who's going to do a good job and who's going to, who's going to flame out. And I mean, time is going to tell if Thorrington's going to be good, you know, good enough to really uh, put together a successful team right off the bat. But uh, I mean, he seems to be a guy that's taken the challenge seriously and um, certainly seems to be friendly with, with the press, which, uh, you know, if you're somebody who wants to learn every nugget of morsel of information you can, like I am, that's never a bad thing. And I guess my other question, just thinking about the history of MLS teams in LA, um, obviously you spent a lot of time covering uh, Chivas USA. Do you think that LAFC is going to make a major effort to be more of a bilingual club uh, than the Galaxy sort of strike me as, to you know, pretty loosely the English language club in LA and Chivas was the Spanish language club. Do you think LAFC is going to try and bridge that gap, or is are they not quite sure of themselves at that in that uh, area of things yet? I'm not entirely sure, to be perfectly honest. Um, I'm somebody who is hopeful that they can be a bilingual or multilingual. I mean, frankly, there aren't just two languages in this in this market. There's a lot of languages in this mm-hmm. market, and um, you know, I'm somebody who would really support efforts to make sure that people from cultures that are typically not uh, marketed to for MLS, you know, get some outreach and, and have some effort made towards, you know, those folks. And, if, you know, obviously if they're soccer fans, hopefully appeal to them and, and draw them into the, the fan base, hopefully. But um, I think it's too early to tell at this point. I mean, I... I have personally spoken to the team in the past and told them that I think that that's an important thing, but it's the kind of um, it's the kind of effort that I don't know if it necessarily uh, makes a, a huge impact right away. It's something that I think you need to slow build over time, and so I'm not sure if they're going to be committed to doing that uh, and and waiting for the you know the the impact to come through a couple years down the line or not. But I certainly hope that they do. You mentioned the academy earlier, and I know you have you, you said on our show uh, in the past that you were pretty disappointed that LAFC didn't kind of just take the Shivas USA Academy, which was prolific, and and build on it from the start, but instead kind of cut it off and then tried to lay down their own roots. How would you rate that effort at this point? It's pretty early. Um, you know, like I said, the Girls Academy is different because they have a partnership with uh, Slammers FC, which is a pretty successful program. So that's a little bit of a different situation. But as far as the boys program right now, they only have a U12 team. Uh, I've been told mm-hmm. that they're going to um, build out the whole academy by uh, in a season and a half from now, basically. So um, not this next season, but the following season, which will be like the fall of 2018, they plan to have the whole thing built out, I guess, to the whatever the latest level is now, which I think is U18 or U19. Um, so they're going to be scaling up pretty quickly, and it'll be interesting to see kind of the coaches and the talent that they bring in along the way. Uh, obviously, right now, when I'm, you know, when we see that it's 11-year-old boys, I mean, I'm not going to be uh, handicapping their <laughs> pro prospects very closely <laughs> at this point. I'm going to let them play soccer uh, and see what happens in the future, but. Uh, I definitely think it's it's a different approach, and we'll see how how well and how quickly uh, it it pays off. But uh, but yeah, they're definitely doing their own thing, and I mean, it seems like there's a lot of energy around the academy, and um, hopefully, they will become a good competitor to the Galaxy's very much juggernaut academy uh, in the not too distant future. Last question, really quickly. Uh, how hard did it hit you in the fields to see a couple of former Shivas USA players on the field in San Diego for the U S men's national team the other night? Uh, it was, it was great. Uh, the biggest thing was seeing Jorge Villafania get his first cap in person coming off the bench. I mean, he grew up in Anaheim, which, you know, is, is in orange County kind of halfway between LA and San Diego. And, uh, you know, seeing him, I mean, his journey is incredible. And I know that probably American soccer fans are so familiar with this story at this point, but 
the fact that the guy basically won a soccer American Idol 10 years ago and, you know, now he's a U.S. international and he's playing abroad and had a transfer fee paid for, you know, for his services and just to see him be so successful and get to this moment. I talked to him briefly yesterday and I mean, he was just beaming from, from the experience. And, you know, I remember trying to interview him back in the day when he was still a pretty shy kid and he did not want to talk (laughs) and to see him yesterday, just, you know, happy as a clam talking to all the reporters who wanted to speak to him. You know, it was, it was, a pretty great day, obviously uh, an enormous day for him and his family and friends. But uh, even for those of us who've covered him over the years, it was, it was also pretty awesome. Alicia, thanks for coming on. Uh, I I know you got to get out of here. Why don't you tell our listeners uh, where they can find you online? Sure thing. Uh, I think uh, I've, my, my website has rebranded since I last uh, was on the show. So uh, the go parade is now called angels on parade. Uh, You can find, the site at angelsonparade.com and then my personal twitter handle is at soccer musings all right that's it for alicia we will be right back to open up the twitter box so stick around this is filibuster the black and red united podcast welcome back to filibuster the black and red united podcast it is time now for everyone's favorite segment where in which we open up the Twitter box and answer your listener questions. First one today comes from RP Kirkland, who is at RPK2ATKU. That is a lot of letters, dude. Uh, who asks us at filibuster DCU. I haven't heard this brought up yet regarding Sebastian Latou. I see him as a victory cigar slash hold the ball guy. Um, Jason, I know you disagree with this. Yeah, uh, Latou is basically, he's got one mode. He wants to go forward. Um, He wants to be busy in the attack. Um, He's not really a technician with the ball. He's not that gifted of a passer where he's going to just keep completing passes and and bleed the clock. He's a guy that's going to try and get in behind and create more things, Um, more more scoring opportunities. He's not a... um, kill the game by possession guy he's a kill the game by going scoring another goal thing uh sort of player which uh united did a fair share of down the stretch last year especially with lamar nagel they got really good at uh going out and at home finding that extra goal um and maybe that's the thought process with latu um i know from reading the replies because i sort of replied to this question about halfway before ben told me not to keep talking um, so we could do this segment. Um, the the counter was that in Colorado, he was a more conservative player. I don't think he was more conservative in playing style. It was just Colorado is a more defensive team all around. Um, and so there was that, you know, he's starting deeper because everyone on the Rapids starts deeper because that is who they are. Um, I don't think you're, you're still not getting a... Uh, a guy who's going to come in and play the wing like Nick DeLeon plays the wing, um, where it's all about keeping the ball and playing keep away against your opponent. I don't think Latou's game has that in it. Um, and if United wants to use him that way, they they are going to find it doesn't really work. Um, I think he is a, you know, hardworking. He'll tire out op- opposing defenses. He will track back. If the other team starts sending uh, fullback forward on his side, he's going to track back and, and make that guy's life difficult. But he's not going to come in and connect 95% of his passes and uh, bleed the game away. He's going to try and get in behind and create something. So when he comes into games, uh, if he's brought in as a sub, that's what to look for, I think, is that United's going to continue being a team that uh, wants to kill the game by getting the extra goal rather than by simply knocking the ball around and, and slowing things down. Which I kind of like. I think it it suits uh, this team's personality. If they they try to change who they are, and they're they're a direct team, even if they are more they're happier with possession than they they maybe were before the switch to four one four one. They're still not a team that is gonna right. hold the it's ball for 70 percent of of right. the game. Um, they still want to take risks, uh, and we may even see more of that now that the possibility of De Leon playing fullback uh, full-time is, is out there. 
Um, they may even become more attack-minded and more of a risk-taking team that looks to outscore you. That's the personality of the, of the group of players now. Um, and after so many years of a team that was basically just trying to grind games out, it's, uh, you know, we're getting kind of the other side of the extreme other side of the coin where it's, uh, the games might take a couple years off your life, but they're probably going to be fun. <laughs> uh, our next question comes from Josh Weber, who is at Salisbury United on Twitter. And it's actually a series of questions. In fact, a series of over under questions, which you, you, degenerate gamblers i'm sure will enjoy he wants to ask us uh over under 12 starts for ian harks this year ben what say you over jason mm, over i'm also taking the over but i think it'll be closer to 12 than than you might think i think he i think there'll be maybe a platoon there we'll see uh 12 mullins goals over or under jason over over Ben? Just under. Oh. You got him at 11? Yeah. Okay. Over under 12 starts for Sean Franklin at center back. I'll go first this time. I'm taking the under. 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 Jason? Maybe under three. Maybe under two. Yeah, I'm Uh, inclined to agree with you. This is still an emergency move. It's not... This is a team that already has four center backs. Um, so, again, there's just not room. I, uh, yeah. We've yeah, talked about this we're, enough. We're not counting preseason games. The six preseason games right. are not going to count for this. And he will obviously not get 12 during that. But they're not going to contribute to that that count. Um, last one from Josh. Over under 12 assists for Lucho Acosta this year. Benjamin. Over. Jason. Over. It's going to be a good year. I say over. Um, last one comes from from Kyle, who is at Kyle Donia on Twitter. He says... Kyle Sheldon? No, different Kyle. Uh, not Kyle Cat. Um, Kyle made it happen? Different Kyle. This is at Kyle Donia, uh, who asks us, over or under 12 old fashions at the day to unite on February 12th? I mean, from everyone who was there? <laughs> There aren't a lot of mixed drinks happening. There's not a lot of cocktails happening. There, there, there are highballs. Don't get me yeah. wrong. There are highballs. There's beer. There's wine. There's not a lot of I cocktails mean, happening. So I, like I'm I was, like not I was, going to drink 12 old-fashioned well, yes. by myself. Like I, like I said, like I responded to him on Twitter, if I were there, I think it, definitely the uh, corporate amount of uh, high, of uh, Manhattans would definitely be over. Not Manhattans. Old fashions. Old fashions, excuse me. Well, yeah. Oh, well, old fashions then. Uh, mm-hmm. Then yeah. definitely under, even if I were there. Yeah, right. But but since I'm not even going right. to be there, Jason, um, because a listener asked this question, are you going to order an old fashioned at Dating Night? I don't know. I'll I'll do whatever I want at that moment. Basically, is what it'll come down to. That is that that's fair. I'm I'm taking the un, the universal under on this one. As much fun as it would would be to have old fashions just going crazy i'm now, not going to, look, asking if, a bartender if, to do that at a, a a very high volume event <laughs> like this you'd better tip really well That's i will all I say, say if if uh, a team of listeners would like to get together and order themselves 12 old fashions throughout the event don't order 12 at once that's ridiculous unless there are 12 uh, of you in which case you guys do you yeah, you know, if you want to line up, uh, you know, if you want to form a cadre uh, uh, and order uh, enough old fashions to turn this over, then please go ahead and document it. Yes. But if you're one person, maybe don't order 12 old fashions at this event uh, because you won't be able to document the last, like, five. Like, there'll be a few blurry, confused photos, and then at the end, it'll just be a mess. We'll find you at the event because we'll, we'll be able to spot you because you'll be on the ground. Um and I Our guess next we'll have to take over the documentation. <laughs> Our next question comes from Mark Rickling, who is at M Rickling on Twitter, asks us at filibuster DCU soccer and politics. What does Adam really think about what Tim Howard said? And um, because I haven't had 12 old fashions, I'm going to um, just say this because this is, this is obviously dangerous territory for any sports podcast to get into. I'm going to say that we are a show that has gone out of its way to have an episode 
specifically dedicated to diversity and inclusion. And if you haven't listened to it, please go find it uh, in our archives. It's a it's a fantastic episode that that our friend Donald Wine the uh, second hosted, and we had some really fantastic, really smart guests, all of them from diverse backgrounds, um, as far as gender, race, ethnicity, the the gamut. And I think it it was a fantastic experience listening to them record that. And I, I think it's a good listening experience too. And the fact that we went out of our way to do that, I think tells what, what I, and I think Ben and Jason agree with me, what we think about that particular issue. And that I think is as much as I'm going to say on that. I'll add that it's episode 196. Thank you. Next question. And the, the last question I believe comes from Jimmy R. Our, our, uh, he, he's a, a prolific Twitter boxer. Um, he asks us at Filibuster DCU, what do you gentlemen think is the reason the U.S. struggles to develop fullbacks? Uh, first, Fabian Johnson, now Graham Zussi being converted because specialized outside backs of national team quality seem hard to come by. Ben, why are fullbacks so, so difficult to, to make in the U.S.? Um, my guess would be it's a unglamorous position that, uh, kids don't want to play. So you get stuck there and you eventually develop or people get moved there when they get a little older because they're not good enough to play, uh, wide midfield or something like that. So, uh, it's a, it's a position of last resort would be my guess. And... Yeah, it's not something that people are passionate about. So maybe if we can develop some passion around it, hopefully, maybe hopefully uh, parents now are looking at their children and saying, hey, and I think it's similar on the uh, for the USWNT as well. Uh, There are there aren't that many dedicated fullbacks outside of the Allie Kriegers of the world. Uh, Yeah, so hopefully parents parents of uh, of uh, boys and girls alike are hopefully developing their children into fullbacks so that they can have a uh, long and distinguished national team career. I'm inclined to agree with you, but I think it's less players and parents and more youth team coaches. I think this is one of the, the issues where um, the youth culture, the kind of the club culture being about winning games uh, hurts us as opposed to developing players. Um, and and so if you want to win a game, you put your best player, no matter what his or her qualities are, you put them in high leverage positions like central right. midfield and striker. And that's why the U.S. has, you know, a, a relative bumper crop of uh, central midfield fielders and why wide midfield and, and striker are much deeper than than fullback at this point or even center back is, is much deeper than fullback. And it's it, because we don't have players who are playing that position from youth, they are generally conversion projects. DeAndre Yedlin even was a conversion project. Uh, Fabian Johnson, as Jimmy mentioned. I'm not convinced that DeAndre Yedlin is a great fullback yet. Yeah, and, and Fabian Johnson didn't even come through the U.S. Uh, youth system. He he's you know he, he was born and raised in Germany. So this isn't, I don't think it's unique to the U.S., but I think it might be more pronounced in the U.S. Jason, what do you think? Uh- I think you, you guys are on the right track. Um, I think some of it, too, is that in, in a lot of cases, we don't have uh, coaches that are able to spot the tools of what will make a mm-hmm. high-end fullback at the youth level. So it's not just that they're saying, this is my best my best player has to go up front or what have you. It's also that they wouldn't know what to do with a natural fullback. Um, if, if they saw someone with the tools, they would still end up being like, well, you're fast. So I'm going to have you sprint up and down the wing as a midfielder or be a forward and you're just going to run in behind and we're just going to go over the top over and over again. Um, so that's part of it too is that a natural fullback, a, a good fullback with all the tools for that role uh, in the modern game, which means you know not just defending, um, but all that stuff is not getting spotted. It's not getting used correctly. Um, and so players that could have specialized a little earlier – don't end up specializing. It's not just about um, only playing them out of position because your desire to win. It's also, it's a mix of, of that and not knowing 
who a fullback is, uh, knowing when that player needs to start specializing at that position to be uh, at their best at it. You know, someone like uh, Fabian Johnson, I know, even as a youth player at 1860 Munich, he was still being looked at as a player who could play anywhere on the flanks on both sides of the field. Um, That's just been something that's been on the table for him forever. But there are other players that come up and they're only used at one position for most of their career. Um, Ajax, uh, their youth system was famous for um, looking at players uh, that belonged on the wing and saying, um, basically in a, a particular youth class, you know, they're, they're, class of of 14 year olds for example they would say the best the best soccer player overall we're going to make them a right winger the second best player will be the right midfielder the third best player will be the right back um and that was their way of looking at it um that's one way to do things at least then those players are being put in a position and spending a lot of time on it um there was an interesting thing in uh now i can't remember who put it out what article it was but it was about I think it was SB, it was actually an SB Nation article about um, a different article about refereeing bias in MLS. Mm-hmm. There was a kind of a sloppy study done on that um, that could have been interesting if the study uh, had been a little more precise. Yeah, there was um, it, it was a flawed study about implicit bias by referees right. that I think PRO mishandled badly in their response yes. to it, even though it was a flawed study. Yes. Um, but anyway, PR said um, none of our refs have any bias, which is obviously untrue because uh, right. we all have biases. But uh, go ahead, Jason. Um, there was the person that wrote the response article talked to a guy that was drafted by the Rapids, and he never he never made it in MLS, but he played club soccer with Chris Duval, the fullback who used to be with the Red Bulls. Now he's with Montreal this year, um, and the guy's comments were kind of revealing because he said. Chris Duvall, until he became a professional, or, or until he entered the college ranks, I think it was, had never been a fullback, had never been even a defensive player. He was an attacking winger at all times. Uh, I think the quote was, uh, at that stage in his career, Duvall couldn't defend to save his life. Um, and there's something to that, where we get players that we know have some tools, but aren't quite good enough at position A or position B. And in this case, in that article, the the idea was that perhaps because uh, of Duvall's skin color, he might have been thought of as not clever enough to be an attacking player, so he had to become a defender, was the implication of that article. I'm not taking it that way. Uh, I'm just saying that players that are good enough to make it as professionals, but that maybe aren't quite so skilled as an attacker to end up in those positions that's the default American mindset is like, we'll turn him into a fullback. Um, see what happens yeah. if you turn him into a fullback. That's how um, Mark Birch became a fullback too, is he a, wasn't a lot good of enough guys, as a forward. It, and know, so he became a fullback. A, and a lot of, a lot of players that you see in MLS that are fullbacks right now were late, late change. Uh, it was a late change made it given their lifespan to fullback. Um, there are the odd, um, you know, there was an instance with the university of Maryland years ago where, uh, Jeremy Hall, who spent his MLS career as a fullback, was an attacking winger for Maryland. He scored 10 goals one year, and the left back playing behind him was Rodney Wallace, who <laughs> came into MLS and became an attacking left winger with the Portland Timbers. Um, so some of it, too, is, is you know, people have, you know, at, at Maryland, that system worked great for those two players, but then they got to MLS, and it was clear that Hall wasn't quite cut out to be a midfielder in MLS, and Wallace needed to be... Uh, you know, let off the chain a little bit and not, not restricted to defending and being this marauding force going forward. Um, but, and sometimes that you, you get in the pro ranks and it becomes clear that that's, that change needs to happen. Um, but a lot of it comes down to our, our youth system is still not very precise. It's still very fractured and, and one team might have a coach that can figure out, Oh, your, your kid needs to be a fullback. And the parents might be like fullback. No, that's no, that's no good. And switch clubs to someone who's like, I don't care. I just want to win. So your kid's going to go up front and score 50 goals against this U 12 team. Um, And it feels, you know, it's great at the time, but down the road, that kid probably would have been better off playing right back the whole time. Yeah. This actually um, dovetails pretty well with something that, that something else that Tim Howard said that had nothing to do with, uh, the national team or, or dual nationals or anything like that. Um, when he came over, he was asked about what he thought um, MLS would be like. And 
versus his observations after playing in it again after coming back for a year. And he said before he got back, he thought that MLS would be uh, technically pretty close, or, or he said he, it would be technically way behind Europe, but tactically pretty close. And it ended up being exactly the opposite, where technically the first touch, the the vision, the the thinking of, of a lot of players is not quite on the level of the top leagues of Europe, but it's closer than you might think. It's tactically... Um, how players approach the game and their positioning and their they're their thinking about the game more broadly that is where MLS players are lacking. And I think a lot of that does, like we've been saying, go back to the youth level and the instruction at that point and the next stage of American soccer on the development front is with coaches and being able to identify players and identify the tools they have and put them into the right spots to succeed long term. And right now it's, you know, you still have coaches who are trying to keep their clubs alive and recruit and say, yes, I will put your kid in a position to score a bunch of goals and and have a bunch of glory um, because that's where the paying families will want their kids to be, as opposed to saying, I will put your kid on the best track for your kid um, long term. And so I think that the as pay to play kind of goes by the wayside, which I think it will be, I think it has been, and I think it will continue to be. Um, and you know, this goes into a whole other issue with solidarity payments and, and all that, which is a big problem for us soccer. Maybe we'll talk about that in the future, but there's a lot that us soccer needs to change about it's, it's youth setup and, and it's club system. But, I think we are still making progress and I think coaches are the next phase of that. And and in fact, the current phase of that. And so if you have an interest in coaching, go get a license and start coaching. If you have a kid um, playing youth soccer, trust your coach to some extent, at least, um, and teach them to use their left foot and teach them to play defense and fullback because that is, uh, it's a surprisingly high leverage position. It's an underrated position and it's an important position as we're learning with this discussion. That's it for questions from the Twitter box. Ben, anything to add, Jason, anything to add? Hearing pretzels? nothing. Oh yes. Pretzels back to pretzels as a question. <laughs> you could have saved that for the, the, the parting shot. No, no. Okay. No, Anyway, thank you all for listening. Um, find us at blackandredunited.com. Find us on Twitter at blackandredu for the website at filibusterdcu for the podcast. Send your emails to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. I promise we do read them all, even if we don't respond in anything resembling a timely manner. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Stitcher. We're on SoundCloud. Mostly, though, tell a friend about us. And uh, we will talk to you real soon. So for Ben and Jason, I'm Adam. Say goodbye, Jason. Pretzels.